out of respect for you guys and for this show, I, I haven't been drinking tonight. I hope that shows in the recording. I, I don't know if it will. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, which we've paid for with our dearest blood. I am Glenn Butler, and today we are back in the Star Trek vault to look at a movie which has a poorer reputation than its predecessor, but one which I'd like to push back against in a big way. For today, we are going to be looking at Star Trek III The Search for Spock. With me to discuss this film is, of course, my brother, Scott Butler. Scott! It is time for total truth between us. How do you plan to get revenge for all those arguments you lost? You green-blooded son of a bitch. I deserve that one. Also with us is a very special guest, my close personal longtime friend, X-Men and Captain America expert from Place to Be Nation's comics contingent, Tim Capel. Tim, how can you get a permit to do a damn illegal thing? Well, I think you have to meet a space pirate in a most Isley cantina, but you might be getting your universes mixed up in that respect. I think you'll find just the sort of character either way, though. I mean, it kind of comes with the territory. It's only a matter of time before we're all hauled off to the Federation funny farm. Quite so. And it is a pleasure to join you, gentlemen, on this fine Friday evening. It's an honor and a privilege to be here on the Spectacular. It is an honor and a privilege every time I can get someone else to call it Spectacular. Yeah, you say that better than I do. I hope that that is my long-lasting influence on the culture of our world, to change the pronunciation of a word. How many people get to do that, other than everyone with an accent that's different from anyone else's? It is like 90% of the reason why I wanted to do this show. Well, we're just playing out the clock, then. Well, I don't understand why you're so excited about Spectacular, and yet you always criticize me for Ex Machina. Ooh. That, ooh. Double standard much? Yeah, that's one of those arguments you lost. <laughs> and, of course, that's how you get revenge for all those arguments you lost. You keep bringing them back up to say the same thing. I have not yet begun to argue. Yes, indeed. I understood that reference. <laughs> All right, of course, we are talking about Star Trek 3, for previously we talked about Star Trek 2. 
Star Trek Three, of course, is a movie that is much more intertwined with the movie before it and the movie after it than Star Trek had previously been. It's something that is more like the middle of a story, and that's one of the criticisms against it, but I feel that that's one that doesn't really land. Tim. Yes, sir. Talk a little bit about where you're coming from on Star Trek, where you're coming from on this movie, and in particular, the, the middle of this story that we're talking about tonight. Well, you know, it's funny you mention that it's the middle of this kind of trilogy within the original series of Star Trek films. This was one of the last Star Trek movies I actually saw, I feel like. I, I saw all the movies out of order, despite being somewhat of a fan, at least casually, of Star Trek growing up. I remember watching the original series in reruns right before or maybe right after Jeopardy! every weeknight with my mom, who grew up on the show as well, uh, had a crush on Captain Kirk at a very young age. I don't think she contributed to the large body of Spurk slash Fick in the 70s. Probably would have been a little bit young for that. I don't think it was really her cuppa, but then again, I, I've never actually asked her. Anyway, That's uh, not she a question was, you want answered. No, no, it, it's not something that, that wouldn't necessarily come up in our conversations, though. I, I just, I've, I've never gone there, so... <laughs> In any event, she sort of introduced me to Star Trek, uh, being a fan of the original series. And this was before Next Gen even started. So we're talking like probably, I guess, early to mid 80s. I'm like four or five years old watching reruns of this show. And I can remember actually when Next Gen started. I feel like it was unannounced or at least you know, we didn't know about it. Uh, and the show aired in syndication, of course. So back then it wasn't like, um, unless you were really dialed into the fandom, you didn't necessarily know this was about to happen. Um, it just kind of happened. So one night we're expecting to watch, you know, whatever episode it's going to be of original Trek and it's Encounter at Farpoint. My mom's response, of course, what the fuck is this shit? Uh, <laughs> Was not on board with Next Gen from the beginning, but in fairness, who was uh, when you're talking about the first season of that show. But anyway, Star Trek was always a thing, always a thing in my life, something that was not one of my favorite interests or pastimes, but was always sort of there. I guess looking back, it's one of those artifacts of pop culture that I can't say I can remember what my life was like before because it's always been there to some extent. So I, I saw probably every episode of the original series totally out of order several times over. Started watching the movies. Um, I saw, I think, number four first, which I've always referred to as the one with the whales. Um, that's That's always just been how it's... Uh, been remembered in my mind uh, and then like six five just totally out of order and I knew you know the titles of these films before I actually saw them and knew that there was a film called Star Trek 3 the search for Spock well why are we searching for Spock well, where is Spock not knowing the events of two I just figured he was on like an extended shore leave or something Vulcan's gone wild and, you know, there was just this mission to find him, not that he was dead, which is a somewhat bigger deal. So it was, uh, you know, some years into my adolescence before I actually saw this movie. 
But I don't know. I just found it really interesting coming at it out of the narrative order that these films are supposed to follow and kind of just vaguely knowing what the background and what the context of the events of this film were. So that was sort of where I came at this film series and this movie in particular. Excellent, excellent. You know, I think Vulcan's Gone Wild is pretty much the exact opposite of the Kolinar. I believe so, yes. Oh, why do you know? Maybe Vulcan's Gone Wild is the Kolinar. Vulcans go wild in different ways than us. As we see in this film. Then again, maybe Vulcan's Gone Wild is the Romulans. The Romulans are absolutely Vulcans Gone Wild for a very long time. But Vulcans Gone Wild may also be, Tim, like you said, uh, one particular scene in this film that we'll get to a little later. And how. Indeed. It's interesting you mentioned that. I had a really similar experience where I think this was the last original series movie I saw. Because I don't think I ever saw this movie until about 1994. I'd seen Star Trek II, because Star Trek II is fucking ubiquitous. And I'd seen Star Trek 1 on TV, and I saw 4, 5, 6 in the theater, but I never saw Star Trek 3. They never really ran it on TV. There was no sci-fi channel at that time. So yeah, that's, there wasn't that's... like a channel dedicated to running old movies. They never ran it on TV like they did with 2 or 1 or 4. So I don't think I ever saw this movie until I dug up a tape that our mother had in like 1994 and finally got the chance to see it. That's the thing. I feel like it was around that time frame that I saw the movie, too. And they they really didn't rerun it on television that much, to my recollection. Um, I mean, I'd seen bits and pieces of two, but I don't think it registered that Spock died at the end of that. I don't know that I'd just never seen the end of it, but I'd seen the movie in bits and pieces before three. I know that much. And that's why I was like, okay, search for Spock. So that he must just have something else going on and, and they have need of his services again, not they need to bring him back from the dead. Right. I really can't remember a time when I hadn't seen the first six Star Trek movies. My childhood is so, like, suffused with them. Yeah. And the original series and syndication, totally out of order, of course. And Next Gen, to an extent, out of order as well. I think I I saw almost all of Next Gen in syndication reruns as well. I only watched, like, the last few seasons of Next Gen in real time that I can remember. So, the first Star Trek movie that I actually remember seeing for the first time is Generations. So everything before that kind of exists in a sort of miasma where it's all kind of on a level field. I had seen Star Trek 2 because that was on all the time. And so I knew Spock died at the end of Star Trek 2. And I'd seen Star Trek 4. And I knew that part of Star Trek 4 was Spock sort of reacclimating his mind to living. And I knew that Star Trek 3 was when they, somehow Spock was resurrected and I knew it had a bad reputation. And that was kind of all I knew about it until I was finally able to see it. Like I said, I don't think I saw it until 94. Yeah, I do remember seeing it on TV occasionally. I I know Channel 11 in the New York area uh, used to rerun movies all the time. And they didn't run it as much as some of the other Star Trek movies, like you mentioned. But I do remember seeing it on there a few times at least. So, the first thing I really want to delve into with this movie is the tone of the story. Because as much as the actual plot is intertwined very deeply with Star Trek II and Star Trek IV, the tone really stands out. 
This is a movie that styles itself in a more mature way, that's a little more melancholy. The things that have happened bring up feelings of loss and remorse, and to an extent the sort of desperation that you feel to bring back something that you lost, and the sacrifices you make on the way, the things that you deem important. And so it's that tonal shift, which happens very early in the movie, I was going to say, they hit the ground running with that. The opening narration by Kirk with, you know, he's basically giving a captain's log, which is not so much expository as these things ordinarily are, but it's it's telling you where he's at in terms of his feelings and trying to process his grief. It's a very vulnerable place for a character who doesn't show a lot of vulnerability. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And Kirk as a character shows a lot of vulnerability in this movie. He sure does. And, And it is set right in the opening where he's almost like a raw nerve. He recalls the line from Star Trek II about open wounds. He talks about feeling like the ship is like a house with all the children gone, which you might think is kind of an odd analogy for Kirk, who's never been the best family man, as we saw in Star Trek II. But you can also imagine that as sort of regarding the cadets and recruits who were populating the ship in Star Trek II versus Three, where they are done away with in that opening narration, and the movie is about more directly our main cast. Yeah, I understand that in the previous film, Madeline Kahn was upset about something. And at this point, we've gotten her calmed down, but not without a price. Uh, Spock is dead, and we really pick up right from there. I'd feel worse about reusing that joke from Todd on your last episode, but I feel like it's a little bit appropriate considering that this does follow on very directly from the last film. Yes, exactly. Thank you, sir. This movie starts with a recap of Star Trek II, and similarly, Star Trek IV starts with a recap of Star Trek III. So they do sort of go right in a row like that. Yeah, it's it's a little like TV serialization where you have the previously on montage. I know Nick Meyer refused to make this movie because he was very adamant that Spock should stay dead, and so he refused to have anything to do with Star Trek III, but... They use quite a bit of Nick Meyer's footage right at the beginning of Star Trek Three. I mean, does he get any kind of credit or like a payment or royalty or something for that? Uh, mm. Possibly. I'm not sure how the business end of that uh, stuck out. Certainly, I think if they had to pay him a royalty, they might not have done that because the budget for this movie was somewhat of a shoestring. Yeah. And And it shows at times. It shows at times. There are times when I think they really make the most of their budget, and a lot of that is in the visual effects and the model making. I mean, there are models that they made for this movie that became commonplace and ubiquitous uh, later in Star Trek. I mean, the, the space dock, space station, is an amazing sight. And those effects shots totally still stand up watching it today. The, oh, yeah. the model work and the design of that station and, and all the, of the shots of the Enterprise entering it and the inside of it is an amazing visual. And of course, this is the movie that introduces the Klingon Bird of Prey, which was ubiquitous in Star Trek for the next 20 years almost. Uh, yeah, through the end of DS9. Did it show up in Voyager? I don't know. Might have. A, a few times, I think. At least through the end of DS9. Yeah. The Excelsior through the end of DS9. Yeah, the Excelsior too, absolutely. 
Uh, yeah, now that you mention it, the elements of Klingon culture, not just, you know, some of the the aesthetics like the bird of prey and the the costuming, of course, that's become so iconic, but a lot of aspects of, you know, just their way of life, I didn't realize hadn't been fleshed out or really even explored before this movie. Like that's really this is where all that stems from. And oh, I man. I literally did not know that until I rewatched the movie last week. I was like, oh, shit, they really didn't do any of this stuff before this movie. This is where it started in 1984. Like, of course, we had seen Klingons before, but they were in a very different version. They were very different. And even the small appearance in the first movie didn't give them any personality, really. Yeah. Right, right. It just gave them, like, some costumes that could be reused for the next 25 years. Yeah, basically. Where this movie, by casting Christopher Lloyd, of course, imbues a ton of personality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, the Klingon language was created for this movie. Yes, there is, on the special edition DVD for this movie and the Blu-ray, an amazing, amazing featurette with Mark Oakrand, who created the Klingon language where he talks about how he took elements of human languages that are very uncommon or elements that don't really go together in human languages in terms of consonantal combinations and sounds that aren't usually present together in human language or two sounds that are very often present together where he put one in the Klingon language and left the other one out to make it more alien in a really, really subtle linguistic way. And so created an entire grammar for Klingon and to a large extent of vocabulary. Of course, all he did the actual vocabulary for was the particular lines that were in the script. But he really goes into the structure of it in a way that might be the single nerdiest thing that I have ever seen, but I love it to death. I hold it in my heart. No, the nerdiest thing is the thousands of people who are Klingon language enthusiasts today. Yes. Well, there's a whole history after this with Mark Okrand being the Klingon language expert to such an extent that when they were making The Next Generation, they would keep calling him to ask him to write lines in Klingon. And, you know, he would be sort of a consultant. And then eventually he figured, well, you keep calling me so much, I'll just write a dictionary. And he wrote the Klingon English Dictionary, at which point the writing staff of The Next Generation bought a copy and stopped calling him. <laughs> so the end of that story isn't so great <laughs> well and they they have some fun with this development too in the movie itself like there are certainly scenes where the klingons speak english when they're interacting with i mean notwithstanding universal translators of course let's just set that aside for the moment uh, yeah. but they're they're speaking english like to kirk and the crew they alternate between speaking English and Klingon knees. And then there are times when they'll just like say something very guttural in English. There's a line that, that stands out to me in particular where Christopher Lloyd, he, he aims his disruptor blaster pistol at, at his first mate. And he, 
he kind of bellows at him, say the wrong thing, Torg. And it comes out just like that, but it's subtitled as if he had said it in Klingon. Like it's subtitled what you just heard in English. And I'm like, why did they bother to subtitle that? <laughs> and at the same time, I'm thinking, wait, why did he say it in English? But it was just guttural enough that it didn't quite sound natural. It just cracked me up. And it, it seems like there's a few lines like that where they just maybe they haven't worked out the kinks or they're just throwing in some in jokes here where they do these things. Yeah, a lot of the language was certainly in flux while they were making the movie. One of the things that Okran talks about is being on set as one of the consultants. You know, they had the person who made sure the lighting was good, and the person who made sure the camera was in focus, and they had him there to make sure that the actors were speaking proper Klingon. And after each take, uh, Leonard Nimoy, as the director, would say, was the sound okay, was the camera okay, was the Klingon okay? And he learned, after a time that it really messes up people's days, scheduling what they're going to be shooting if they have perfectly good takes where everyone's happy with the lighting and the acting, but he says the Klingon is wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he kept, like, revising the language to match what happened to come out of the actor's mouth during the take. It's like, well, I'll just change the grammar so you don't need that inflective, and then we can use that take. Yeah, basically. Yeah, considering how much downtime there is on a non-Star Trek film anyway, when you're just making a normal movie, so to speak, I could see that getting kind of frustrating (laughs) when you're trying to put together this big science fiction action set piece and every detail has been precisely honed and crafted. And yet the language is just a little bit off. So your day is that much longer as a result. But I just, I just love the detail of it. The fact that he got to totally geek out and doing anything that he wanted to see in a language and put it into this movie. Well, when you're afforded the opportunity, I mean, why not, right? I mean, I think it'd be overly ambitious for most people to invent a language out of whole cloth, but, you know, to each their own. Yeah, it's kind of a Tolkien-esque thing, except with greater demands of commerce. Didn't he also create other languages later? Like, didn't he, like, work on the Vulcan language and, like, a couple other Star Trek languages? He did the three or four lines of Vulcan that they have in Star Trek II, except that wasn't a fleshed-out vocabulary or grammar or anything. He was just figuring out sounds that matched the actor's lips because they performed the scene in English and then overdubbed Vulcan later, so... He had to come up with words that would... that would, And they didn't want it to look like a bad kung fu movie? Yeah, basically. They actually did that a couple of times in Search for Spock, where they decided that they liked the sound of the Klingon language enough that they wanted Christopher Lloyd to ADR a couple of lines in Klingon that he had spoken on set in English. So there's one point where he calls... Um, the guy he vaporizes for destroying the Grissom, he calls him an animal, and they wanted to overdub that line, so Ogren made up the word Hattibach to match the lip motions. And now that's just part of the language. Put it in the dictionary. (laughs) By the way, the lines and the screaming by Spocks at various ages, anything that is put in via ADR in this movie is super, super, super obvious. Ooh, you're not kidding. Yeah. Uh, that happens to an extent in Wrath of Khan as well. Scotty and McCoy yelling at Spock in engineering. They're clearly not moving their mouths at all. But in this movie, it really, really stands out to me. 
Now, speaking of Christopher Lloyd, did you guys get the sense that he didn't exactly um, melt into this performance? It's rather obvious that we're, let's face it, watching Christopher Lloyd in blackface, basically, but that's neither here nor there. But I was wondering at what point in these Star Trek podcasts we were going to talk about Klingon actors in blackface. Maybe we can put off that apocalypse to another day, but... I'm prepared to call it problematic, but maybe not on this show. It's definitely problematic, and I don't really know how much farther I want to go than that. But it's an issue that I think it's important to be aware of at the very least. I really don't see it that way. They're not trying to look like black people. They're trying to look like space aliens. They're trying to look like space aliens who are stereotyped as brutal savages. And it kind of doesn't help that later on in subsequent, and that's not to hold that against what Star Trek was in 1984, but nevertheless, in subsequent iterations of this franchise, Klingons are pretty much exclusively played by black and brown people. And it's like, mm, well, except for Worf's son, uh, who was the first. A lot of the high profile Klingons aren't. Uh, Lursa and Bator, the Dura sisters, are played by very white women. Robert oh, O'Reilly. God, I forgot about them. Yeah, Robert O'Reilly, J.G. Hertzler. Yes. I don't, maybe I'm just blind to it. Maybe I'm looking at it wrong. Maybe my opinion is completely shit. I don't see it as blackface any more than the Bullions are in blueface or the Vulcans are in sort of greenish face. They're space aliens. They're trying to look like space aliens. It's not like they got a white actor to play Tuvok, you know? It's not like there are beige Klingons and brown Klingons and they hired a white guy to play one of the brown Klingons. All the Klingons are this particular skin tone, and so if you play a Klingon, you get this particular skin tone. Not all Klingons are the same skin tone. Well, they're all within a range. Christopher Plummer in Star Trek VI wasn't blacked up nearly as much. In all honesty, on the list of grievances, it's a pretty minor one. I guess my only point was Christopher Lloyd, He, I wouldn't say he disappears into his performance. Like, you know the whole time you're watching Christopher Lloyd play a Klingon. I well, mean, Christopher and that's Lloyd, to take nothing against him. It's just, it's very much, this is Christopher Lloyd. And if a Klingon were to look and act like Christopher Lloyd, well, here you go. Well, Christopher Lloyd, just in general, is not an actor who disappears into his performances. Right, his voice is so, so distinctive. In part because a lot of us spent large parts of our childhoods watching Back to the Future. Some of us watched Taxi or other big roles that, that he was in, and so we know him. But I do think that his performance is pretty good, though. He does try to invest Krooge with more personality than the script does, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that for sure. He does a lot to elevate what he's given. I mean, in a lot of ways, this could come off as like a poor man's con. I mean, I know they're very different characters, but but to really introduce that idea of the big bad and Cruz, for better or worse, is the equivalent of that for this movie. To his credit, he does turn in a performance that, while very Christopher Lloyd-esque, imbues that character with, uh, with some flourishes and an interesting take on what could be a pretty flat character, I guess, is what it comes down to. Yeah, that's something that I definitely want to hit on, what you said about being a poor man's con. And that's something that I'm going to want to trace through 
all of these Star Trek movies. When we were doing Wrath of Khan, we talked about the pull that that movie exerts on all future Star Trek movies, with possibly one exception. But the idea of a Star Trek movie having to have a big, iconic villain is an idea that is taken very, very often by future entries. For better and for worse. And usually that, for worse. Usually for worse. That's something that we're going to be talking about in basically all of these podcasts. Well, they mirror Star Trek II in this movie more than in a lot of them. I mean, Nemesis is obviously trying to be Star Trek II, and Into Darkness is a Star Trek II AU. But in this movie, they have Kirk down on the planet, and Kruge up on the ship, and Kirk is talking into the communicator to Kruge, saying, I have the secret you want, I have the secret of Genesis, again, I have the secret of Genesis, but I'm down here, and you're up there, and if you want the secret of Genesis, you're going to have to bring me up there with you. It's the exact same scene from Star Trek II, except this time, the Klingon beams down so that him and Kirk can have a fist fight. Yes, and I think that scene might invalidate, to an extent, the criticism of Star Trek II. That was exactly what I was going to bring up next, because you made that criticism in Star Trek II. That it was a detraction from the movie that Kirk and Khan never got a face-to-face face-off. That you thought just them talking to each other on the view screen. You made the point that, well, their great acting helped make up for the fact that they don't face each other. And the fact that they don't face each other is a deficiency in the writing. Well, here you go. They brought the Klingon down to the planet so that him and Kirk could have a fist fight face-to-face. This is what you wanted. Congratulations. And it is... Well... <laughs> And it is totally a fist fight straight out of the TV series, except it doesn't have the music that the TV series did. Yeah, for some reason, this of all scenes doesn't get a score to back it up. It's basically like James Horner saying, I don't want anything to do with this shit. But it, it basically is a fist fight straight out of the TV show with some bad blocking and some super, super obvious stunt doubles. Bill oh, Shatner must be a really tough guy to get a stunt double for. He must. <laughs> And let's face it, we're talking about the difference between Ricardo Montalban with his fabulous non-prosthetic chest and, Christ- and Christopher Lloyd, who's... With his know, fabulous non-prosthetic forehead. <laughs> Very- <laughs> but but, Very I, good, but I think when I discussed that in Star Trek II, if I recall correctly, I don't remember most anything I've said after we stop recording, but what I was trying to emphasize was that those two actors I would have wanted to see play off each other in person. That is a dynamic that I think they could have done a little more with. I'm not saying the movie is necessarily lesser for it. The movie's great. But that is a dynamic I might have wanted to see a little more of because it was already good the way that they did it. Anyway... On to this movie. The- well, yeah, I mean, I think you needed that for this movie. Like, you couldn't do the dramatic cat-and-mouse game and the face-off between Kirk and Cruz like you could Kirk and Khan. I mean, they just, they didn't have the same kind of chemistry. It wasn't there in terms of the backstory, the history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It sort of had to come down to just some fisticuffs because you needed that to liven up what was, frankly, a a fairly dull villain. I mean, what was he motivated by? Give me Genesis! I mean, that's what it came down to. Well, that's a motivation that I want to talk about. But, Scott, did you have something else you wanted to hit on right now? Well, I was going to make one quick point and then, I think, make the same point you were about to. One of the problems with the Kirk and Kruge 
confrontation, face-off, battle of wits, is that Christopher Lloyd just does not have the gravitas of Ricardo Montalban. I mean, that's nothing against Christopher Lloyd. He's a fine actor for the roles that he's in, but he does not have the gravitas that you need in order to have this epic battle of wills across a view screen. He's just not that kind of actor. The character is also placed in a very different role than Khan was. Khan was a specter of the past come back to haunt Kirk. A prior bad decision, the chicken come home to roost. Scrooge is coming in from the outside. He doesn't have a prior history. He doesn't have that totemic a role in the story. As to his motivation, I think there's a case to be made that Scrooge is right. Because his motivation is that he's heard of this Genesis device, and he's heard of its great power to create and also to destroy, which is what McCoy was talking about in the last movie. Yeah. And he imagines the Federation using it as a weapon of mass destruction. This is a movie made in the middle of the 1980s, in the nuclear age, and it is a device that will wipe out your planet and replace it with whatever the Federation wants. You know, a, a home in the country and the flag of the Federation flying overhead. He sees Yeah, it, that was a great line. You're right about that. He sees it as potentially the best weapon the Federation's ever had. Because that's exactly how the Klingons would use it. Yeah, exactly. It all depends. The Genesis torpedo could be used as an exceptionally devastating weapon. It's just that that's not how the Federation perceived it. Right. Kruja's mistake is not considering the different positionality of the Federation. They don't send people to the Genesis planet to find out what happened so that Dr. Marcus can recreate it. They send people there to investigate what happened because they want knowledge. They are doing it for the sake of science. And that's something that Kruge, from his positionality, can't understand. However, that utopian view of the Federation isn't always borne out in Star Trek. I was about to say, given the later revealed existence of people like Colonel West, and people like Admiral Dougherty, and even just the basic evil Admiral of the Week, is Kruge really misjudging the Federation that much? Yeah, the, the USS Grissom science vessel goes to investigate it. You think there's someone from Section 31 on that ship? Ooh... Yeah, J.T. Esteban is not going to use the Genesis weapon to devastate Klingon worlds, but there's lots of crazy people in the hierarchy of Starfleet. J.T. Esteban in this movie is not using it to devastate entire worlds. J.T. Esteban, if he got an order signed in triplicate by all the necessary people, would use it to devastate any damn thing the order says. Well, let's get to J.T. Esteban later, because I want to talk about him a bit. But right now we're still talking about the Genesis, the, Genesis the devastating device. destruction of the Genesis weapon. Yes. And it is a nice example of show, don't tell, right? That whole speech by Cruz about what the Federation could and what he thinks they would do with this device, uh, it, it speaks to their, I guess, tunnel vision, or at least the tunnel vision within a somewhat fringe element of Klingon culture that he is a part of. So uh, it, it gets that across pretty efficiently and, and pretty economically, I think. One point I was going to make is that they explain why Kruge wants Genesis. He sees it as an ultra weapon. He sees it as the most devastating weapon in the Federation arsenal. He wants to protect his home, the Klingon Empire, from being devastated by this Federation super weapon. 
and he also wants it for himself so he can use it against the Empire's enemies. He, this is why he wants the secret of Genesis, so that he can defend himself and defend the Empire against its enemies. They explain why he wants the Genesis weapon in a way they never explain why Khan wants it so badly. Yeah, you just sort of have to assume that, and it may not even be clear until after the fact when you've seen this movie, or at least seen the end of Wrath of Khan, and you know what Genesis can do and what it's capable of, you can sort of tack on that explanation, but but you're right, that wasn't really there from the outset. Yeah, Khan never has a scene where he says, you know, we can use this weapon to devastate our enemies, or... You know, we can use this torpedo to remake our world and, and have, right. have lush fauna to live amongst. He never explains his motivation in the way Kruge explains his motivation. Khan never has a plan other than hurt Kirk and keep hurting him. You know, there is, by the p time of the movie, there is nothing else on his mind. Mm. That That is shown very clearly. But that still doesn't explain his obsession with obtaining Genesis. True. I mean, he goes so far as to ask Kirk for it rather than just blow up the ship. And that sort of motivation and his focus on Genesis is never explained in the way that right at the beginning, Kruge explains his motivation. This is a devastating super weapon, and I want to control it. Now, Kruge, he did have somewhat of a personal stake in this endeavor. Kirk killed his dog, didn't he? The Klingon Mutt. Yes, the Targ, who's, who's never given a proper name. And that, that's the first time we see that, that fella, right? I mean, we've never seen uh, uh, pets. We've never seen a bird of prey before. So this is all new to us. But uh, the, the puppet work there, it kind of reminded me of something out of the fly, which would be several years later. But uh, I, I know that's a film near and dear to your heart, Glenn. So, so I had to just I had to mention that just to bring it up. That's a film near and dear to the fear centers of my brain. I don't know about my heart. <laughs> mm -hmm. It sticks with you though, doesn't it? Oh yes, thanks. It, it's sticking in my memory right now. Thank you. No problem. Very good. Now, I suppose we should talk about Spock at some point here. Uh, before we get there, while we're still on the Klingons. Uh -huh. I want to go back to the tone of the movie a little, because the Klingons here have a great deal of theatricality about them. In some of the blocking choices and some of the performances, certainly, as we mentioned, Christopher Lloyd's performance is very big, but also has some shades. There are scenes where he's mourning his Targ for mm -hmm. a second, and there's the scene where Kirk reaches him on the communicator and he has his head bowed, mourning his crew. So he has those shades to him. I love his line delivery when they're trying to figure out why the Enterprise hasn't destroyed them yet, and then the guy says he wants to have a truce to discuss terms, and he just sort of, he's got his head sort of cocked to one side, he just sort of very drawl, he very, he goes, put him on screen. Yes, <laughs> I love that line delivery. It's so good. Definitely. Um, but in terms of the theatricality of the Klingons and the theatricality of some of the acting in this movie, uh, the thing that I'm thinking about is the scene where Kruge and Maltz and the other Klingon, that might be Torg, I don't remember. Which one was John Larroquette? He was one of the trio, right? Yeah. John, John Larroquette was Maltz. He's the one who survived the movie. Okay. He's the one that says, you know, impressive, they can make planets, and that's not bloodthirsty enough, and he gets dismissed back to his station. 
Yes. Yeah, he's the one Klingon who might be willing to think outside his worldview, and his captain doesn't like him very much for it. <laughs> right, the rational one. You don't get to be captain of a Klingon vessel by being thoughtful. You get to be captain of a Klingon vessel by being more brutal and deadly than the one who used to be captain before you. Yeah, basically. But in the blocking and the performance of that scene, after he sends John Larroquette away for not being sufficiently bloodthirsty, he turns to the other Klingon and does a very clear stage whisper into his ear explaining what they're going to be doing for the rest of the movie. And that came off to me a lot like an aside in a Shakespearean play, where a character kind of steps forward and addresses the audience in a way that is continually parodied on... I've been watching a lot of Whose Line Is It Anyway, and they do that all the time. Well, they did it all the time on, on the Craig Ferguson show. Yes, and it's a very direct way of saying, this is my reaction to this, this is my plan, this is what I'm going to be trying to do. And that informs your impression of them for the rest of the play. They can't have Kruge turn around and address the camera and say, you know, I will try to get Genesis to save the Empire. So he turns to the other Klingon and, and does the obvious stage whisper right into his ear. What? That struck me as a really theatrical note. Having the commander explain things to his underling as a way of explaining them to the audience is sort of a tried and true method. True, but that particular blocking decision really stood out to me. Knowing already that the tone of this movie is a little more theatrical, a little more operatic, because that's Leonard Nimoy's area of interest. And so as an actor who's directing his first movie, he is prone to service the actors in that way. Mm -hmm. That's definitely a nice touch, too. That's, that's something that it's subtle enough. I don't think I would have noticed it without it being called to my attention. But yeah, now that you mentioned it, that added a little something. Another thing that really informs the tone of this movie and the sort of melancholy that hangs over it is the fact that it's called The Search for Spock. The movie is about the thing that it is missing. Wait, wait, wait. Kirk is not an existentialist until generations. Don't get ahead of yourself. I don't know if Kirk is an existentialist. The movie positions itself sort of in that way. It's about the absence. The death of Spock came to define Wrath of Khan in a large way, in an obvious way. And the search for Spock makes him so conspicuous by his absence that his restoration at the end becomes not only a triumphant moment for our heroes, Although not so triumphant, because the movie still has those notes of melancholy, there are still sacrifices that must be made of totemic objects and totemic characters to some of the other characters. But it's a restoration of the way that Star Trek ought to be as Star Trek is presenting it to us. There were other characters introduced in Star Trek II. There was David Marcus, there was Savick. In this movie, David is killed, which is something I know we're going to talk about later. Mm -hmm. Savick is used in a way that I am going to want to talk about as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the whole movie is about the restoration of the thing that is missing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's called The Search for Spock. Why are we searching for someone who is dead? Spock's story is over, right? That was pretty definitive at the end of Khan. So like you said, the very fact that this movie is called The Search for Spock, 
it's kind of telling it certainly it gives its premise and its ending away we know spock is going to be restored so in a way this entire movie is just a means to an end so they took something that quite honestly they could have hand waved away i mean all we're trying to do here is get spock back into play right we need him back on the board they devoted an entire movie to that i mean they jumped through considerable hoops to make this happen so you know, when these things are done, it, it's very obvious and you can see the gears turning. But here, I think it's done in a way where, where the execution, um, and this is such an overused term and thing to say, but but they really earn it. I mean, when all is said and done by the end of this movie, they have earned this resurrection that could have been done very kind of haphazardly and in a slapdash way. They didn't do that. They really went through the right beats to convince you that, yeah, th- this was an earned moment. And there, I said it. I also think it's interesting the extent to which they earn it through the introduction of elements of mysticism. Mm-hmm. There is the Starfleet commander who says, you know, he's never understood Vulcan mysticism and kind of dismisses the whole thing. And then the rest of the movie is about how he's a doofus. <laughs> Right. Wow, I don't know that. Well, again, that kind of echoes what I was saying about the Klingons before, and that inability to see outside of your own worldview. Well, he's the commander of Starfleet. He's supposed to enforce the rules in Starfleet. True. I mean, what kind of commander of Starfleet would he be if the government of the Federation says no one may go to this planet, and one dude says... Hey, I need to go recover my dead friend from the planet, and he's just supposed to say, Well, okay. Well, no, I know the role he plays in the movie. He's the face of the bureaucracy. But on another level, he's just another stumbling block in the way of our heroes. Yes, but you cannot make the argument that Kirk is making a reasonable request that should be granted. Well, of course. I mean, Morrow says that Kirk's career stands for rationality, which is a pretty big laugh line. You want to get into that? There's two things to get into with that line. One, the reason that's a big laugh line is mostly from this movie. True. Because if you look at the original series, and you look at the motion picture, and even in Wrath of Khan, Kirk is not out there breaking all the rules. Kirk is not some space cowboy vigilante acting on his own in violation of everything else that his duty is telling him to do. He doesn't start doing that until this movie. There are a bunch of episodes of the original series where he goes to a planet and decides he doesn't like the way their society is run. Well, sure, but none of those are depicted as him, like, fleeing from Starfleet or violating his orders or anything like that. He is an excellent starship commander, and part of being an excellent starship commander is fulfilling the missions assigned to you and following the orders given to you. And he does that through this movie. It's really this movie and then Star Trek IV where he just sort of shows up on the scene and says, whoopee, let's do time travel. And then not so much in Star Trek V, but again Star Trek VI where they sort of go against the entire Federation. That's where you get this outsized reputation of Kirk does whatever the fuck he wants and flaunts all the rules. Before this, he really didn't do that that much. So, Admiral Morrow's statement that this would completely fly in the face of your entire career is accurate up to that point. But the other thought I had during that line is he says your career stands for rationality, not chaos. 
I have to wonder how Kirk took that line. If somewhere in his mind he had the thought, consciously or subconsciously, yeah, where do you think that rationality came from? Sounds like a Vulcan, doesn't it? Yeah, you're kind of convincing me I need to go get Spock. And that's the thing, like this whole, I don't get Vulcan mysticism. There is an inherent contradiction there with the way Vulcans are presented as very logical, of course, and and they've suppressed their emotions and any hint of irrationality. And yet they do have this very mystical take on their spiritual beings, I guess you could call it for lack of a better term. It sounds a little bit uh, hokey, I guess, but at the same time, it's legit. This is true. They mind meld. They have a katra. They have a spirit that is everything that the body isn't, right? I was going to say exactly that, that it sounds hokey coming from a human saying, well, my eternal spirit will live on after I died. That could be hokey or it could be a tentative belief that we'll never have evidence of one way or the other. Vulcans have evidence. They have experience. They can communicate mentally. They can touch your mind and sense that it's there and sense that it's still there after you died. They have evidence for all this stuff. They have experience so with all this stuff. And that it's a little bit out there, but it's but it's not irrational because it's true. Exactly. It's not it's not an unfounded belief, and it's not a belief contradicted by their experiences. It's a belief supported by their experiences. And that same thing plays into the conversation that Kirk has with Admiral Morrow. Because Admiral Morrow says, you know, I've never believed Vulcan mysticism, but Kirk has some experience with Vulcan ritual. Kirk was there in a muck time. Kirk saw what happened to Spock in that episode. Kirk knows that this may seem mystical to outsiders, but the Vulcans always have a reason for what they do. And if this is what the Vulcans want to do, they must have a good reason for it. He has that experience that Morrow doesn't. Did you guys get the sense that Sarek and his pretty great extended cameo, I guess it's a little bit more than that, but the way he talks about Spock, and maybe this is just me, but he almost paints him as like this cheapish unassertive boyfriend who's dropping hints where he's <laughs> he's telling he's telling kirk these things he's saying he asked this of you and kirk is saying he sarah he, he didn't ask anything like that of me he didn't say anything about what his final wishes were or to return his body to vulcan or, or any of these things this is all news to me sir and sarah immediately backpedals and said well well he, he wouldn't have spoken of it openly and i again a, another i think unintentional laugh line but but the way he kind of paints not just spock personally but kind of as an extension all of Vulcandom was rather unintentionally hilarious. You know, I have seen more interpretations of just about any scene featuring Spock and or Kirk as having queer subtext and or text that you can imagine <laughs> because I am on the internet. Mm -hmm. That is a new reading on me. And I wasn't even looking for it. It's just... I'm thinking the same thing that Kirk is obviously thinking, like, no, he didn't. He didn't ask you to do any of this shit. And Sarah, well, he, he wouldn't have spoken of it openly. Well, okay. That reading of Spock as almost a closeted character making insinuations is a much different dynamic than I usually see in Sparkfic. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's nut. Oh, I'm glad you're here. 
like I said, I, I wasn't going to go there and I wasn't going to make a thing of it. It was just, it was the only analogy that really came to mind. I'm like, what? Where's, where is this coming from? Why, why is this in here? Like there's so many ways they could have framed that scene, you know, like Sarah could have gone to Kirk very grief stricken. Hey, you know, I know you were his best friend, but look, there's a lot you didn't know. And you really fucked this one up. Like you should not have shot my son down in a torpedo onto this new planet. That's not what he would have wanted. And it's not an appropriate burial ritual for a Vulcan, certainly a Spock stature. What were you thinking? But instead, he's talking about all these unspoken things and aspects of their relationship that he has no knowledge of that's, I guess, implied or just assumed, ultimately leading to the mind meld where he learns the truth and realizes, oh, this was not something that was either spoken or implied. I I was completely mistaken. It was not implied or implode. (laughs) It's a good thing they made the rather strange decision to launch Spock onto the planet rather than just, like, firing him into the sun or something. (laughs) It is, right? Yeah. Spock's Katra lives on in McCoy. You must bring his body to Mount Sileia. It Uh, worked out nicely. Well, we thought he was dead. We shot him into the sun as part of our space burial. Fuck. (laughs) Could have had a very different ending. I, I think we did mention in the Star Trek Two podcast they didn't shoot Peter Preston out of the Genesis planet. No, apparently not. They did not. <laughs> and and by the way, I'm sure Sarek is quite grief stricken, but he would not speak of it openly. Well, no. We well, know he's that. very angry in that scene. You can see him. I don't know if it's in, on purpose, but you could be really interpret that as a Vulcan trying hard to maintain a rein on his emotions. He's very angry and hard with Kirk. And he's doing some very stern eyebrow acting. Yeah. Yes, and Mark Leonard always adds a ton of gravitas. Oh, yeah. Mark oh, my God, yes. I mean, speaking of theatricality, there is an actor with oomph. I mean, I forget that he was only in the one episode of the original series. Like, he has so much oomph that you feel like he was almost a regular just because he brings so much to, to every scene that he's in. You forget how little you actually see of him. His appearance is definitely something that sticks with you from the original series. So much so that they brought him back for, what, three Three of the movies? Yeah, three movies. And several episodes of Next Gen. Well, we're talking about Vulcan mysticism and how the Vulcans are governed by logic. Can, can, Can you explain to me the logical reason for that? giant bejeweled chest piece that Sarek is wearing at the end of the film. I mean, these are the Vulcans who eschew emotion and theatricality and live their life by logic alone, and what on earth is that thing for? Apparently they don't eschew bling. <laughs> you know what I really enjoyed, it's funny that you mentioned that, I enjoyed his initial meeting with Kirk as well, and they're like stately appointed ski lodge which i was never clear if that was like back on earth or still in the space dock they never really made clear what happened to the crew once they were on their shore leave did they go back to earth or to a nearby planet but anyway they're they're in this like what looks like a ski lodge and they're kind of kicking it in their track suits and their pajamas and and sulu's case like a sombrero apparently 
and uh, they're they're having a toast to their their fallen friend, which they, they've already honored him a few times, and now they're just getting pissed drunk, which seems a little bit more appropriate and relatable under the circumstances here. And then of course you've got Sarah who walks in and crashes the party. So the costume choices there were quite something. Well, first, I'm pretty sure that is back on Earth. That's Kirk's apartment from Star Trek II. Ah, it's okay. It's just lit very differently, so it looks almost nothing like what it looked like in Star Trek II. Well, a lot of things are lit differently in this movie. But uh, second, I love the costume choices for the ensemble in this movie. And this is the first time they actually feel like an ensemble, rather than Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the rest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we'll get to that later. Right now, I love the costuming for them because they're all different, and they're all a lot different than the uniforms yeah. that they would usually be wearing. There are things you can look up from the costume designers that those things are, are thought out, too. There's one in particular, the uh, necklace that Uhura wears is very consciously a piece of sort of Afrofuturism. With some of the styles of African jewelry, but also kind of a sci-fi bent. Sulu is decked out in this fantastic leather cape. Yeah, he looks <laughs> yeah. awesome. Uh, and of course, there's Chekhov, who looks like the little boy on the paint can. Yes. Mm-hmm. The best thing about these outfits is, other than Kirk and Uhura, Sulu and Chekhov are in those outfits throughout Star Trek Four as well. Kirk and Uhura change later in the movie and then get stuck in their later clothes throughout Star Trek IV. The color of Kirk's shirt changed throughout this movie, but it was that same... I don't even know how to describe this thing. It's almost like a an oriental fan that's woven into his shirt, and it goes from white, and it's a little less shocking when you first see it, and then it's like this very 1980s fuchsia which kind of offsets his trousers, and it's just glorious. I mean, no one exactly wears a uniform in this movie, at least not for long stretches of it, but Kirk in particular is, my God, that that's really something. And yet, the costume that he has, and largely keeps for Star Trek IV, looks a lot like the uniform. Well, it's the same mm-hmm. color as the uniform. Uh, yeah, I mean, may- maybe it's just the color, but... When- it's, like, it's like a Starfleet... Leisure suit. Yeah, I mean, when I was a small child watching this movie and the movie series, I kind of assumed for a while that that was just a uniform variant because it was so close. Well, I think it is probably. I don't know if it's a uniform variant, but I think it's some sort of Starfleet casual wear or, you know, Starfleet off-duty wear, some sort of standard thing. Well, and you this, saw so much of it. I mean, it, it, it got a lot of screen time, so you would think, hey, this is just a less dressy version of, of the uniform that he would otherwise be wearing. The same thing with that, like, velour jacket version of the uniform that Admiral Morrow wears in the bar and then Scotty wears throughout most of the movie. Yeah, definitely. And while we're talking about costuming, we would be remiss if we did not follow up on the running theme of these Star Trek movies, which is Dr. McCoy's costuming choices. Yep. Well, Dr. McCoy, these are very similar to the CVs he wears in Wrath of Khan, aren't they? I, th- I think they're pretty similar, the jacket and the shirt. Somewhat. They, his shirt and the jacket he wears over it both have epic lapels. He has epic lapels on his jacket on top of epic lapels on his shirt. 
lapel game is still on point. That jacket is awesome as fuck, too. And he wears I love those that jacket same, that he wears. Yeah, and he wears those same civvies throughout Star Trek Four. So it's looking like possibly when they go camping in Star Trek Five, he may wear an outfit without epic lapels. We'll keep you posted. We will follow this through every ding-dang movie that we can. <laughs> and on that note, of all notes, I think we will hit our ad break. We will listen to all of the great things that you can find on the Place to Be podcast network and our affiliated friend sister network. We will see you on the other side to continue this discussion. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. What's up, everybody? This is Kevin Kelly. Make sure you check out every episode of The Kevin Kelly Show right here on the Place to Be Nation. PlacetoBeNation.com, The Kevin Kelly Show. Every episode is a winner. At least we hope. Place to Be Nation's Justin Rosero here. In addition to The Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes at PlaceToBeNation.com. You can check out Scott Criscolo and me on The Mothership, The Place to Be Podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with main event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. And relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series, led by Ben Morse, and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. we got sports covered, too, with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott... Dr. G, Cowboy and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather, Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McClune Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. And if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlaceToBeNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' blog of doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's One Two Punch of Exile on Bad Street, and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. 
Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Team's back again with Kelly and Marty Slees. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. Nobody needs me. Yes. That is just what we do here on the Spectacular now. I make no apologies. This is who we are and this is what we do. Yes, hello listeners. I am Glenn, that is Scott, we've got Tim, and we've got the Hunger Games sticking with us all the live long day. It, it's, it's a callback to our very first episode. Longtime listeners appreciate callbacks. God, I hope so. <laughs> this show is inaccessible to new listeners. All eight episodes or whatever number this is in, and, and already you've just got too much continuity. You've got to clean this up. Are you saying we need to reboot the podcast? I'm saying you need to reboot. You need to revamp and reboot. So we need to get someone else playing me and someone else playing Scott? Yes. Or just a soft reboot where we're still here, but we're doing completely different things. Like we get new jobs. And if we're going to do that, we need to diversify the cast. I think you should be a woman, and I should be a black person or a Latino person. Well, absolutely, we need to up the diversity quotient of this podcast. Yes. I think what this podcast needs is more problematic white liberal intellectuals. Well, you are in luck, sir! (laughs) And the sound of everyone turning off their listening devices... Hey, you know what? If people stuck around past our Iowa caucus preview, then they are on board with problematic white liberals. Well, that's a good point. (laughs) And if anyone is voting after the Iowa caucus, they are probably voting for a problematic white person. (laughs) But anyway, we are back here on the all spectacular where we are problematic and white and liberal and intellectual at least we try god we try and presumptuous in my case so you assume (laughs) but we are back and we are talking about star trek 3 the search for spock i wanted to kick off this part talking about the characters and their journeys in this movie Uh, scott do you have a uh eagle eye view on this Well, one thing that struck me about the characters, and you mentioned they sort of seem like a group for the first time. They sort of show the camaraderie between more than just Kirk, Spock, and McCoy for the first time. It struck me as really odd. In that scene where they're all getting pissed drunk in Kirk's ski lodge. Kirk's in a tracksuit. Let's not forget. Kirk's in a tracksuit. Chekhov is dressed up as the Dutch boy. Sulu is in that really amazing suit of his. In that scene, Chekhov asks, will we get another ship? And I thought that was an amazing question coming from Chekhov, considering that a week earlier, he was the first officer of the Reliant. And now he's saying that we want another ship. He was the first officer of the Reliant. Kirk was an admiral attached to the Academy. 
Sulu was a pilot on training cruises. I don't know what Uhura was doing. She was just part of the Kobayashi Maru test for some reason. Scotty is captain of engineering on the Excelsior, but somehow Chekhov is referring to this group as a we, as if we are all together and we want another ship, as if they all had a ship earlier. I thought that was kind of an amazing statement. Well, that's kind of another way that the movie is reifying the concept of these people together as the core of what Star Trek is. Which some people take as a problematic concept later on, but that's really a core idea of this movie. Is that by presenting them as more of an ensemble, by presenting them as more of a family, they make them a more tight-knit group than they really were depicted as before. And therefore, the lack of Spock is felt in an even deeper way. Meanwhile, the lack of Spock is really the reason why other people can get enough screen time. <laughs> to, an, to an extent. Yeah. Also, of course, part of that is the influence of Leonard Nimoy. There was something else that I was reading about the making of this movie that said that George Takei nearly didn't come back for Star Trek II because he figured, what's the point? My character isn't doing anything. And they made him promises, and they shot scenes that they cut where he actually had lines... But he was unhappy about it, and that was something that Leonard Nimoy wanted to take care of when he got the director's chair, when he got more influence over the movie. So I think that that idea of giving everyone something to do had something to do with Nimoy's influence as well. Well, George Takei, depending on when you talk to him, because people's stories change over the years. True. George Takei, at various points in history, has claimed that William Shatner completely sandbagged those extra Sulu scenes. That William Shatner completely sabotaged all those extra scenes he negotiated for. That stuff has always come off like sour grapes to me. I mean, I hate to... Yeah. I don't know. I just... I've always not put a lot of stock into that whole George Takei, Bill Shatner rivalry thing. I mean, I know there was there were some genuine hurt feelings there, but... I don't know, the whole thing about how William Shatner didn't go to his wedding and it just... A lot of it sounds like it was blown out of proportion and that they've gotten past it. Whatever it was, that it, it seems like it's been smoothed over somewhat over the years. But I could definitely see George Takei being in a place in 1984, 1980, whatever, where he had a little bit more of a chip on his shoulder with respect to what he was given to do or what was taken away from him in these movies. Because... He had a lot more to lose than William Shatner did, depending on how this whole thing panned out. That's true. Sulu, though, he does get probably the most shine in this movie of any of the films he's been featured in. You know, he gets that scene with the guard, Don't Call Me Tiny, where he throws the guy into the wall and, and knocks him down with, a, I guess, a hip toss. Nice little squash match for him. Work rate wasn't quite there, but, you know, they can't all be five-star matches. I think he gets so, bonus points, though, for having the entire fight without losing that leather shoulder throw. Yes, I was going to say, he, he does conduct himself throughout that scene quite fabulously. Yes. Uh, and then with one arm, blows up the control console with whatever that thing was. It didn't look like a phaser, but, yeah, I mean, he just, he pretty much owned that and uh, walked away with that little scene. So, good little showcase for him. There's one scene later in the movie, after they blow up the Enterprise, where they're all on the Genesis planet, and Sulu's the one with the tricorder, where he says, the planet's unstable, 
and this and that and the other. And then Kirk asks him, are there any life signs? And Sulu says, yes, I'm picking some up over there. And I remember when Glenn and I were watching the movie the other day, I commented at the time, why is Sulu the one taking those readings rather than Pavel Chekhov acting science officer? That stood out to me, too. Like, Chekhov, for all that Sulu gets to do in this movie, Chekhov gets, like, nothing, really. I mean, it really drives home how, like, I want to say useless he is almost (laughs) as a character. I mean, Chekhov has always been kind of just set dressing in a lot of ways, but I mean, he gets nothing in this movie. He's, he's almost aggressively boring the way he's standing around, not doing anything or just saying something flat out stupid. He annoyed me. His, his very presence annoyed me in this movie in a way that it never has. And in anything else I've seen him in, well, I think that might be a compensation for how much he got to do in Star Trek II, where he did have some extensive dialogue scenes and where his character did branch out a little bit before getting reeled back in. Yeah, That is true, yeah. Before getting to the point where he now refers to the group as we and we need another ship. Um, Uhura, what is with that scene? You know what I'm talking about, right? Uhura in this movie is incredible. (laughs) Incredibly brief, but incredible. It's brief, yes, but it is a great highlight of this movie, and a great highlight of letting everyone have something to do, where pretty much the only thing she does in this movie is totally shut down an inferior man who is placed with her and is immediately condescending to her. (laughs) She shoves him in a closet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At gunpoint. Yes, and there is one shot when he is condescending to her about her age and experience and the fact that she's in this seemingly dead-end job, and she shoots him a glance that would melt steel. <laughs> side eyes, side eyes. They refer to him as Mr. Adventure. I don't know if he has a uh, a proper character name in the in the credits, but not uh, in the credits. Maybe in the novels. Maybe Probably she calls him Mr. Adventure, and that actor, his delivery, the overacting was um, <laughs> pretty unbelievable, um, but in a way necessary, I think, to pull off that interplay and what they were going for. But man, when I saw that scene, I was like, what is going on here? What is this movie? And what is this turn that it's just taken? It's just, it's unreal in a good way. That was one scene where they really keyed into the comedic aspect of the way that they were using the characters. That whole escape, stealing the Enterprise, really had a lot of comedic elements kind of woven in, in a way that's become de rigueur for sci-fi movies, action movies, blockbusters, but a formula that I'm not sure was in its current state at the time. Certainly there, there were a couple of Indiana Jones movies by this point, but that formula was still kind of being developed. Yeah, it was, it was like that extended escape, hijack, theft sequence was like this madcap caper that was just sort of dropped into the movie, which it certainly hadn't been up to that point. We talked about the melancholy tone that we start out with and really hit the ground running with. uh, But then it gets to this point where it takes on more of a whimsical quality. Um, I think to the film's credit. 
It really does, and that's one way in which the movie isn't content to have death as a melancholy thing hanging over the movie, but it turns death into a fighting chance to live. And that scene is where they start fighting. That was beautiful. That That's going to stay with me. I'm, I'm going to file that one and keep that in my pocket. You can see the exact moment. And it's that moment when Admiral Morrow says your career stands for rationality, not intellectual chaos. And you see Kirk's face change like a switch, where he goes from trying to convince the Admiral to trying to placate the Admiral. Yeah, definitely. And then he starts quipping almost immediately after. Yeah. He goes to the rest of the crew and he says, you know, the word is no. I am therefore going anyway. In this cavalier style that is really just such a Kirk moment. Well, because he's already flushed his career down. He's already decided to flush his career down the toilet. That decision's made and Kirk is not somebody that looks back. Okay, I've already decided to jettison my career and my entire history of Starfleet that stands for rationality and not intellectual chaos. I am jettisoning that like so much flotsam weighing me down. Now I'm trying to go steal my friend's body from the Forbidden Planet. And that's what I'm focused on. Well, and we've seen what being an admiral means to him, which not is to much. say not very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah, being an admiral means being chained to a desk and yeah. trying yeah. to get away. And hey, apparently you know, being you... a fugitive means getting his ship back. <laughs> exactly. And it really drives home the point that while maybe you can go home again, is that always the best idea and the best course of action? And it doesn't happen without a price. Like I said, they could have done this in a very hand-wavy way, just brought Spock back in the first 15, 20 minutes of the film. But instead, it's this kind of long slog, and, and you really go through the motions of grief and everything in between uh, life and death here. And in order to get to the point where Spock is living and breathing and more or less himself again, what have we lost along the way? Uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but Kirk's son, he loses David, the Enterprise itself, and something else we haven't really gotten into, but look at Savick's character, which is not really a byproduct of the plot itself. This is getting a little bit more meta, but look at how she's been sort of marginalized in a lot of ways. So, you know, you could try to backtrack and, and reclaim these aspects of your youth and get the gang back together. But look at what you, you lose in the process. And is that really worth it? And it's a question that I think they leave open at the end of this movie. And you guys have mentioned before about how all of these movies, to a certain extent, are about the actors and the characters getting old. Um, yes, absolutely. And going through stages of maybe various midlife crises. Um, I think we see that continued and played out uh, with Kirk in particular here. Uh, in a lot of ways, this is Kirk's movie which is not something that, that I had thought about or really jumped out at me before. Um, but in watching it again last week, I was like, you know, for a film that is called Search for Spock, this is very much a Kirk journey, which, you know, a lot of these movies are. But this one in a way that almost sneaks up on you. You don't expect it to be quite as Kirk-centric as it really is. You made the point before we started that all the movies are about getting old. Yes, and to an extent, that's true. But we've talked about that sort of in more detail as we go along, that Star Trek 1 was sort of about trying to reclaim your youth, 
Everyone went back to where they once belonged. Star Trek Two was the one about getting old and sort of learning to be okay with it. Star mm-hmm. Trek Three, to a great extent, is about consciously leaving your youth behind. It's about shedding your youth. Kirk does it with his Starfleet career. His entire youthful career when he was a young captain and he stood for duty and rationality and all that stuff Admiral Morrow was talking about and Kirk consciously decides I'm leaving all of that behind because all that's not helping me save Spock. I'm going in a new direction. I'm leaving that behind. You see a similar thing with a lot of the other characters. You see Savick in the first movie is very young and inexperienced and still learning and very much looks up to Spock as a mentor. And now in this movie, she's sort of on her own. She's an officer in her own right. She has a rather disdainful view of her new commander. That That's sort of a, you know, more mature viewpoint in some ways. You see David Marcus. He's no longer working with his mother. He's now leading the scientific mission on his own. By the way, j- j- quick, just quickly, I did miss Bibi Besh from this movie. Do you want her back? Oh my gosh. I want my Bibi Besh. Bibi Besh. You'd think, just on a plot level, that she's the lead scientist on Genesis, you'd think she'd be involved somehow. But also, in terms of character, I can't see her character giving that up. We talked in the Star Trek Two podcast about how, in her own way, she was just as headstrong and stubborn as Kirk. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I kind of got that same impression too. She was she was missed in this movie. I, I almost forgot that she wasn't here because David certainly was, and I was under the impression that they just brought back everybody from two since it is such a direct follow up. Yeah, they so. even went so far as to have Bill Shatner pretty much reshoot her introduction to the Genesis Project. Yeah, he replicates her exact words. He just resays them. Which was something that um, I think, too, could have actually benefited from. You guys had talked about how he wasn't really involved in that project. And this just voiceover that they swap out Carol Marcus for Admiral Kirk makes it seem like he is definitely more tied into this thing than we are led to believe throughout the course of Khan. If you look at McCoy and that scene he has with Spock in the sickbay right toward the end... He is also sort of, he acknowledges that he misses Spock. He begins to sort of leave behind his youthful antagonism that he has between them. I mean, they always sort of have an antagonistic relationship, but now he's actually willing to admit that he misses his friend Spock, whereas a younger McCoy probably wouldn't admit to that. And Spock literally goes through all the experiences of youth again before finally reclaiming his consciousness and his adult personality. Two sides of the same coin. And McCoy does a a really nice job of channeling Spock's cold logic through his own classic irascibility. So I thought that was a great, great turn by DeForest Gully, who, uh, the scene in the Mos Eisley Cantina, that is, <laughs> that is one of the great lines ever. Where the hell is the logic in offering me a ride home, damn it? Yeah, <laughs> just perfect. Perfect distillation and blending of the two of them, which shouldn't work, but it does. It works so well. I kind of got the sense that, I don't know about you guys, but McCoy didn't seem like he had enough 
to do in this movie. He was obviously integral to the plot, but beyond that, I mean, he gets some some really nice, memorable scenes, but they're really just moments. He didn't feel like he was an integral character within this himself. He was more, I don't know, just an artifice of the plot. I do think that the moments he gets, however, really, really sing. That scene in the bar is incredible, and I will hear no other opinion. <laughs> oh no, other yeah. Opinions? I don't I don't even know. The one last indulgence in the antagonism with Spock, as we referenced at the beginning of the show, you know, it's his revenge for all those arguments he lost. <laughs> uh, that line has to be self-conscious, right? That he has to be self-aware <laughs> of, of the game he's playing there, and that really shows what was behind the antagonism was more of a respect and friendship. That's sort of friendly ribbing in a way that some of his scenes in the original series aren't to the same extent. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, I like that McCoy is the recipient of the Katra, I think we should exclusively refer to it as the Katra. But I, I like that just because of the way it subverts expectations. Because you're thinking the whole time it should be Kirk. But the way that they turn that on its head and by giving McCoy as a member of that trio more to do and being this cog in the process that is bringing Spock back to life was really a stroke of genius. I just wish that as a character he had more to do in this movie. It just seemed like at the end, in the climax, when it comes down to Kirk and Cruz and they have their fight, that, you know, McCoy is just kind of one of the supporting cast who gets beamed away onto the bird of prey, and, you know, we don't really see too much of him again after that. Well, that, I think, is part of the unfortunate influence of Wrath of Khan where Krug had to be that sort of villain, and so they had to have a fight at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the last moment in the movie for McCoy that really, really sings, and Scott, I know this is a scene that you love, is when they're on Vulcan, and Talar tells him that, you know, this procedure is dangerous, you have to choose, and he kind of perks up bravely and says... I choose the danger. And then he's immediately like a little more relaxed and, and irascible and says, hell of a time to ask. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> Cause basically from the time that Kirk kidnapped him out of the mental hospital, that's the first time anyone's given him an option of what to do. Right. I think that's what it comes down to. He didn't have a whole lot of agency in this. I think he just spelled it out, Scott. That's maybe my, my problem. And it's a minor quibble. I mean, I mean, that's part of the humor of the whole escape scene is when they go in the elevator and McCoy's trying to ask him, like, what the hell's going on? Like, you're taking <laughs> yeah. me to the promised land? And Kirk's like, yeah, we're fine. Pipe down. That's, and, what, that's what you get for missing staff meetings. Yeah, and then McCoy's the one like, <laughs> how are you going to get through the doors? There are doors there. And Kirk's just like, ah, that's what you get for missing a staff meeting. Go and then he's the just along for the ride, yeah. Speaking of the scene with the space dock doors and Kirk prodding Scotty, which is another great comedic moment from the movie, you know? Yeah. I, I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, Scotty in this movie, his perspective on the aging theme is really portrayed through his relationship with the Excelsior, which is almost exclusively one of contempt. 
Yes. You know, this is the new sleek, fast ship, but it's not the ship that I've been working on for 20 years and the one that I want to refit. But if you look at Scotty, Scotty, I think, has a very interesting... I don't know if I'd call it a journey, but if you want to analyze Scotty's thought processes in this movie. Because... Remember, Scotty is the one who started a fist fight with the Klingons when they insulted the Enterprise. And Kirk was trying to dress him down, like, you know, just because they say bad things about the Federation, or just because they say bad things about me, or just because they say bad things about Starfleet, and none of those and, was a thing. And the captain. He, he, would, he would abide them insulting the captain before they would the ship. <laughs> exactly. He starts a fist fight with the Klingons over insulting the ship. And then he refits the ship, and then he's in the engineer on the ship, and he wants to refit the ship again, and he hates the Excelsior because he wants to go back to Enterprise. If Kirk and the Enterprise is your OTP, Scotty and the Enterprise is super your OTP. Except then, Kirk says, okay, we're going to set the auto-destruct sequence, and Scotty doesn't hesitate. Well, priorities, you know? But that is another way that the movie... Tim, like, as you were saying a little while ago, as much as it's about Spock and searching for him, and as much as it's more of an ensemble movie, that shows how much the movie really is centered on Kirk in other ways, because the loss of the Enterprise, the great love of Scotty's life, is centered on Kirk wondering, you know, my god, what have I done? You know, that moment is about Kirk losing this ship that, as we saw in the motion picture, that he was fighting to get back and desperate to get back. You know, that moment is about him. And by the way, they completely spoiled that scene in the trailer, which yes. I don't know. Harv Bennett and Leonard Nimoy were not happy about that when they found out either. Right. I mean, in the trailer, it's right there. Last voyage of the Enterprise, and you see it. You see the saucer section blowing up, and it's like, well, there goes their their big surprise because they wanted to keep that under under wraps as much as possible. Of course, you want to keep something like that under wraps. I understand a little bit from the perspective of the people making the trailers that they want to use one of the big, expensive, hopefully iconic effects shots in the trailer, but for plot reasons and aesthetic reasons, that is kind of terrible. <laughs> which which is sort of the conflict between art and commerce that all of popular entertainment falls somewhere within. Well, it's all it's it could be terrible depending on how you feel about spoilers. Yes. I mean, obviously we talked about the muddled order in which we've seen any Star Trek movies or TV shows, and I mentioned how a lot of these things are kind of in a miasma where everything is almost taking place at once because it's on a level field. So, the idea of being spoiled for Star Trek 3 is something that I can't really understand, but I, yeah. think from <laughs> the, but I think from the perspective of the time, it might seem a little unfortunate. Even knowing everything that happens, it's still, I, I think, a great moment and a great scene. I just think people have this sort of default position where spoilers are bad, and if you know something ahead of time that detracts from your enjoyment of it... I don't necessarily think that's the case. I mean, I certainly think that the surprise that you experience, the revelation, can be part of your enjoyment of it. On the other hand, if someone says, you have to watch this movie, they blow up the Enterprise, it's so cool. And then you go and watch it, and they blow up the Enterprise, and it is so cool. 
I don't necessarily think that's a lesser entertainment experience just because you knew about it ahead of time. Yeah, that's true. And if I recall correctly, it's also true that the phenomenon of spoilers is kind of a modern invention. Yeah. That I mean, to, to play devil's advocate, how many people really knew what they were looking at in that trailer when they see kind of the carcass of the Enterprise sort of float by the screen? I mean... Without the surrounding material of this is why we're doing this and this is what you're really looking at, do you know what that represents? I mean, do you even know that you're looking at the Enterprise blowing up and that's a huge scene and a huge part of this movie? Maybe not. It may not register on that one and a half, two minute trailer that you're seeing. Yeah, a casual fan is not necessarily going to recognize it. They're just going to say, oh, they're going to blow up a ship. That's going to be cool. Mm-hmm. And a more hardcore fan is going to watch that and say, there's no way that could be the Enterprise. That's yeah, the is that Farragut, the Enterprise? That's the Republic. That's the Excalibur. That's the Intrepid. There's no way that's the Enterprise. But I can see uh, from the filmmaker's perspective, they know exactly what they're looking at and what this represents. And from that vantage point, they're just thinking, oh, my fucking God, spoilers. Yeah. Maybe not in those terms in 1984, but you know what I mean. Not to well actually you too hard. I believe one of the shots they included in the trailer was the big shot of the saucer, USS Enterprise, NCC-1701, disintegrating. Well, that would sort of obviate the potential it could be the repulse <laughs> or the... <laughs> Maybe it's a dream sequence. <laughs> You're making this position much, much harder to defend, and I'm not that interested in doing it anyway, so... In any event... I did get the sense that the Enterprise blowing up the way it did should have been played as a bigger deal than it was. I don't know. I'm not sure what else I'd be looking for in something like that. Maybe I'm just more used to when blowing up the Enterprise or crashing the Enterprise or otherwise destroying the Enterprise became more of a running theme. I don't want to call it anticlimactic here, but it's just sort of, yeah, they set the auto-destruct sequence and beam down to the planet and watch it blow up. And that's exactly the way it plays out. And uh, it's it's almost like no frills, but if this is what you're expecting, we delivered on it. Well, if you're watching that scene without spoilers, then you're sitting there the entire time thinking, any second now, Kirk is going to spring the second half of his plan and avoid destroying the ship. And you're expecting that probably even after the front half of the saucer blows up. You're probably still thinking, okay, now he's killed all the Klingons and he's going to take command from the battle bridge or something. Right up until the ship actually burns up in the atmosphere, you're expecting somebody to pull something out of their ass and save the ship. Yeah, I mean, they even set like a a one-minute countdown where you're expecting, okay, the way they're setting this up, Somehow or another, at the 11th hour, they're going to save the day. And I'm pretty sure more than one minute of film plays out <laughs> while that auto-destruct sequence is counting down. So you're you're pretty much setting yourself up for, they're, they're going to walk this back somehow or another. But nope, they, uh, they blow the ship up, but good. I think the way that they kind of underplay that in terms of making it, you know, a big crashing iconic moment, goes towards Kirk's characterization in this movie. Twice, in quick succession, he loses something very, very important to him. His son dies in a fantastic scene by Bill Shatner, by the way. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll get there. And 
then he destroys the Enterprise as part of a last-ditch desperate plan. And each time, he takes about 10 to 15 seconds to grieve and then goes back to working on the problem. Yeah. That's somebody who could probably, once this is all done with and he has a chance to exhale, that's somebody who could really do with an extended vacation on Vulcan. That's when he'll have his nervous breakdown, once, once he allows himself that luxury. So, I want to talk about that death scene, and I want to talk about David in this movie. David really needs to stop picking fist fights. He doesn't do well in them. Yeah, he brought a hug to a knife fight in this movie. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm a hugger, but damn. Well, in the last movie, he brought a phaser to a fist fight and still got the crap kicked out of him. True, yes. I will say that David comes across as a bit more likable and sympathetic in this movie. Really? Um, I thought so. I mean, compared to Khan, where he's you know wearing the preppy sweater on the bridge and just standing around like a fuckboy. In this movie, I mean, he's don't get me wrong, he's he's not a standout character by any means, but it seemed like they took some pains to make him at least a little bit more likable, so that. While you weren't exactly mourning his death, it was like, oh, shit, that sucks. It sucks for Kirk, and we care about Kirk, even if we don't care about David. But it did seem like he was, if not, maybe likable is is not the, the right term, but a little bit more human. They certainly make a point of highlighting his flaws and trying to, to draw this line between him and his father with injecting the proto-matter into the Genesis torpedo to ensure that it would work and how unethical that was, which, yeah, frankly, the, didn't seem like that big a deal, but so Yeah, in the, in the last movie, he did a magic thing, and now it turns out he did the magic wrong. Right, so he's not quite the flawless, impeccable scientist that he was presented as in his introduction. I think David in this movie, and Savick as well, are kind of a victim of most of their scenes taking place together on the Genesis planet, which is where some of the weaknesses of this movie really come out. Yeah, all the weakest scenes in this movie really take place on the planet. Yes, the notorious line for me from this movie is, it is time for total truth between us. Which feels like Harv Bennett trying to write Vulcans as just the driest, most obvious exposition machines. Can I just say, you want your BB back, I want my Kirstie Alley back. I was not a fan of Robin Curtis's performance at all. In yeah. any way. Yeah, definitely. And all of the exposition is kind of dumped in those scenes. It has to handle what's going wrong with the Genesis planet. It has to handle some of the Klingon stuff. It has to handle all of Spock's rejuvenation and development. And the way that that's handled is just kind of clumsy. And it's down to those two characters and those two actors to try to hack something of it, and they don't do a great job. If you're going to sort of dump all of this heavy exposition onto two actors to try to shoulder it all, those are not the two actors I would choose. You know, DeForest Kelly and William Shatner maybe could handle that. These two random people, not so much. My God, man! You injected protomatter! The planet is developing unstably! That scene could work. Merritt Buttrick and Robin Curtis could not handle this level of exposition. Tim, what do you think of, of the way all the Genesis planet scenes were handled? 
by the way, how cheap the set looked on the soundstage for the Genesis planet. Oh, oh yeah. I'll talk about that in a minute. I would just say that I concur that the weakest parts of this film are concentrated on Genesis. And this is where the cracks really show, certainly in the budget. You can kind of tell where they ran out of money or where they just didn't make a huge investment. The set looks cheap. The effects, especially at the end when Kirk kicks Cruise into the fiery pit of Mordor, I guess, looks like something out of a canon film from like the same time period. I I was reading a review of this movie earlier today, which referred to that as Kirk tries to save Cruise, which he, he does. He does try to do the Star Trek thing to do which would be to grant clemency to your enemy, as as seen in the original series, and then decides, nah, and kicks him into the bad visual effect. The really bad visual effect. It's comically bad. And it's Um, a really stark contrast, because the model work looks incredible. Yeah. All the ships, all the space shots, the Enterprise, the Bird of Prey, the Space Dock, the Excelsior... All the model work is incredible. It's distractingly good. I'm not paying attention to the scenes because I'm paying attention to how good all the ships look. And yet, this stuff on the Genesis planet looks awful. And the the snow is like the fakest fake snow I've seen since Legend. It just, it's awful. Ooh, yeah, and it looked like they reused a lot of those like fake trees and rocks and sand and shit for a lot of the the away team stuff on next gen. It it looked conspicuously like television y cheap in a way that just it, it lets down like the sec well, the last quarter of this movie really. The thing that always stands out to me whenever I watch this movie is the cacti in the snow scenes. Haha. Ooh, yeah. Which are obviously just like drapes put over a post with some spikes. Yeah, and it's like boom, matte painting, and then bad community theater set. It's pretty inexcusably awful. People talk about the cheapness of, let's say, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but Star Trek V. Well, I know this was 1984, but effects weren't that much worse so i i think when when your option is having an effect that looks that cheesy and then i don't know maybe trying to circumvent that in the script you go for the latter yeah and a lot of that is less effects and more set dressing mm-hmm. and, absolutely and soundstage shooting rather than location shooting because they can't afford locations I mean, there are places where they really make the budget work. Like, Scott, you were mentioning all of the spaceship scenes look great. But there are places like the Genesis planet scenes where you really see the constraints. And combining that with some of the worse writing in the script kind of kills all those scenes. That's what I was going to say, is that this movie is full of great scenes. It's not necessarily a great movie, but it's full of great scenes, except for the Genesis planet. It is a movie that because of the Genesis planet scenes, because of a couple things, it is really somewhat less than the sum of its parts. Definitely. And that's something that I think leads to its, I think, 
undeservedly bad reputation because I am entirely willing to emphasize the positive. Especially in Star Trek because that's that's just where I'm at, baby. Yeah, I think people look back on this movie and and just kind of vaguely remember Christopher Lloyd as a Klingon and the shitty set and Kirk's son being there as kind of this hanger-on. It just sort of unfairly influences you know, or, or prejudices the opinion of this film. And, you know, you get into that odd even thing too, which I don't even know if I want to go there. That odd even thing is something we can mention with each of these movies. But like I said in the Star Trek Two podcast, I wholly reject it. I do Be- too. Because there are movies like Three that, for various reasons that, that we're talking about here, I love this movie. Yep. I don't know if I can say I love the entire movie overall. I love large parts of this movie. Well, well, like like I said, it, it's somewhat less than the some of its parts, but I can I can emphasize it a little more. Um, one part where some of the more stale writing and more stale acting I thought actually worked was when David is killed and Robin Curtis delivers her line absolutely deadpan. David, David is dead. Is dead. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and she is just deadpan, has a flat affect, which works for a Vulcan, and works for kind of a tense moment where she wouldn't have time to grieve anyway. And Kirk, who also, of course, doesn't have time to grieve, let's talk about that scene. Let's talk about Bill Shatner. And let's talk about the whole construction of it, because there is this moment, this is one of the things that I love about this movie when Kirk kind of stumbles back and falls down. He can't even make it to his chair. He can't even make it to the captain's chair, the literal seat of his power for the series and in the movies. He just crumples. The whole point of the end of Star Trek II was that he finally had to face death. And in Star Trek III, he's going through this entire journey to undo that. And then he has to face it again. Yeah, there was there was some question as to whether Shatner deliberately fell back, missed the chair, or if that was completely on accident. But whatever the case, he really, really makes it work. And I think he has even gone on record as saying, or someone has at least, that it's probably the best single take of Shatner's career for all the hammy acting he does and the Shatnerisms. He crushes this. You know, in the line that Klingon bastard, you killed my son, it's kind of understated. Yeah, he goes small. He kind of mumbles it a little bit. Uh And and then comes back big. And then comes back bigger. You know, as he's kind of building himself back up. Because he understands he doesn't have time to grieve. He understands the situation he's in. And so he has to repeat himself, but also kind of get bigger and get broader. And build himself up more so that he can come up with another plan. Again. And that line could come off as so goofy. (laughs) And probably should i'm not sure that that's the best choice of the script to put those words into his mouth but he sure sells it and we've talked about how kirk is not a man who's really into showing vulnerability no exception here compounded by the fact that he can't show vulnerability because cruz doesn't know that david is his son he doesn't know that he's really got kirk by the balls to the extent that he does And Kirk is powerless here. 
he can't move an inch. He can't let on the bind that he's in, and he's he's utterly helpless and paralyzed. He's not even there to witness this. He has to hear it secondhand from Savick. And this is a point where the movie kind of takes a tonal shift that almost gives you whiplash. You know, it started out sort of melancholy, then it settled into that that kind of madcap, silly escape comedic stuff in the middle section and now all of a sudden shit gets real david has just been stabbed through the heart he is dead and it's like did that just happen here again not a character we're especially attached to or are fond of but it's like whoa wait a minute i didn't think this was that kind of movie (laughs) so yeah i mean there's just a lot going on here And, and i think it's it's a scene that honestly doesn't stand out as that memorable on kind of a just surface view, but is in a lot of ways, the most important scene of the entire film. As we close out on the characters in this movie, I just want to touch on a couple of the more minor characters. And that would be the two Starfleet captains that we see in this movie. Captain Styles of the Excelsior and Captain J.T. Esteban of the Grissom. Or as I called him in my notes, Captain Tightpants. J.T. Esteban is... I want to say he's a bit of an officious prick, but he's more than a bit of an officious prick. He's a whole lot of officious prick. Even to the point where he starts to annoy the Vulcan with how much of an officious prick he is. Yeah, there is a tried-and-true history in Star Trek of depicting basically any other captain or admiral or commodore who is not from the Enterprise as incompetent or insane or in some way deficient to kind of boost our heroes. And this movie really, really buys into that. Captain Styles carries around a... a Swagger stick. Swagger stick, literally. Thank you. And J.T. Estevan is so incredibly rules-bound. They're, they're both total caricatures. He's not only rules-bound, he's like a dick about it. Like, he's worried about Savick encountering radiation exposure. And he's not worried about that because Savick could get radiation poisoning. He's worried about that because if I let you go on this mission where there's radiation poisoning... I'm the one out on a limb here. You remember that, Savick. If you wind up poisoning yourself with radiation, I'm the one on the limb for letting you having done that. And in all honesty, the Grissom getting destroyed by the Klingon Bird of Prey is almost played for laughs. Because they have been portrayed as almost comically inept. Savick, you know, trying to communicate back to the ship and realizing it's not there. She's like, hmm, must have been destroyed. I mean, she almost shrugs her her shoulders. She's so disaffected by this. When the Klingon ship suddenly shows up on their scanners as it decloaks, Captain Esteban never asks for shields. He's like, oh crap, it's the Klingons! Savick, we're under attack! Everybody, we're under attack! And it's like a good three, four, five, six seconds before the Klingons finally decide to shoot at him. And he never says, raise the shields! It just seems like the filmmakers know better than to try to play this as more than it is because no one gives two shits about the Grissom. Well, that's by design. The filmmakers set it up so that the audience won't give two shits about the Grissom. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to. We've got enough to care about as it is. So 
that was that. It was just like, well, so much for them. Yeah, true. I think one thing that we need to touch on before we finish this show is the Ponfar. Oi, the Ponfar. Oi, the Ponfar. Oi, the the development of Spock and his evitable puberty, and of course the finger sex or the finger foreplay. Because I think most people's assumptions and headcanons are that the finger uh, gestures are more like making out for Vulcans. Impolite to do in public, but de rigueur for couples. Um, Tim, what do you think of the use of finger sex or finger foreplay in this movie? Oh gosh, oh my gosh, oh, just muttering to myself. I think that... This was played out a lot more realistically and delicately in the later adaptation, Sex Trek, The Next Penetration. Uh, really sold me on the whole Ponfar finger sex thing and, and what that can lead to ultimately. Because th- they cut away before y- you get the full experience here. So... I'm not really sure of the significance of this event and the formative development of young Spock and what this means to Savick as well. So um, got to deduct points from this movie for that, for the unrealistic, unconvincing portrayal of finger sex here. The finger sex itself, I guess, was fine. But um, what did that really mean? You know, is this important? Did this go a lot further? Was there something we didn't see? And it, it gets into some issues with Savick's character as well that we've already touched on, but I think for the purposes of, of this discussion, I'll leave it at that. Scott, was that scene the least erotic love scene committed to film? No, not by far. Really? Oh, God, there have to be... There have been many, many, many horrible love scenes filmed. I am positive. Plus, you know, there have been rape scenes filmed, which automatically get ranked below any consensual activity, no matter how stilted or awkward. No matter how stilted or awkward or possibly pederasty? I don't even know. Mm. Well, we don't really know how old Spock is meant to be there. I mean, it's it's weird sci-fi finger sex anyway, so... Well, it's sort of odd. What's the word I'm looking for? Well, it's contravention. icky. It's contravention. icky because he was a, you know, a, a child, a, I guess, equivalent of a toddler when they find him. And grows up very rapidly, of course, but it's just, ew, ew, like... She starts out as having this sort of motherly interaction, and then it goes there. So it just it left me feeling kind of gross all over. Well, it's sort of an interesting contravention, because I had the reaction watching Star Trek II again for that podcast. The Spock Savic ship that is very popular in Star Trek it just really fucking creeped me out watching Star Trek 2, where Spock is, like, in his 60s or something, and Savick is a circa 20, 22-year-old cadet, and he is her mentor, and that really fucking creeped me out, knowing that they have a relationship in some novels. 
And this movie is sort of the exact opposite, where Savick is, you know, 22 years old, a freshly minted Starfleet lieutenant, and Spock is a boy of some indeterminate pubescent age. It's the exact same squick, except in the other direction. It's definitely uncomfortable. Well, and it led to an aborted, no pun intended, subplot, I guess you could call it, in the next film to kind of explain Savick's absence, right? It led to something... I mean, we might as well not discuss this in four, because it's not really part of the movie. But it leads to this discarded scene where she says she's pregnant and so she can't continue on with the crew, which I am very glad they cut out of the movie. <laughs> yeah, there's a few reasons why um, why that was better left on the cutting room floor. Well, we don't really know exactly what's going on in that scene, because we don't know how old Spock is supposed to be. You know, is he 13? Is he 18? Is the finger sex enough to calm the burning of his blood? Do they have to have sex in order to calm the burning of his blood? Does he have to fight David Marcus to the death in order to calm the burning of his blood? We don't know exactly how far they go in that scene, or what is necessary at that point, or how old Spock is meant to be at that point. I said it in jest, but I'm telling you the porn parody actually did it better. (laughs) Which is very telling. That wouldn't surprise me, because the porn parody Uh, can just go straight out with, I'm in Pon Far, I have to fuck someone. Well, and that's the thing about Pon Far. How does this work? It's it's every seven years? Is that... All right, so let's do the math, right? When does this kick in? It's obviously not at the age of seven, I don't think. Um, He didn't seem to be having any issues in that department, so... 14? Do we really want to go there? He seemed a bit older than that. Well, we don't know if it kicks in at 14 because that's a multiple of 7, or does it kick in at 17 and then continue every 7 years after that? Or does it kick in at 19 and then every 7 years after that? We don't know. Do we know how old Spock was in a muck time? That's probably, you know, it's probably, you could probably look it up on Memory Alpha, find out how old he was supposed to be in a muck time, and back calculate from there to figure out when his first Ponfar was. I think we should do that. Let's look it up right now. We need to get to the bottom of this. The listeners need to know. Okay, so Spock was born in 2230. What year was Amok time? Well, it was season two, so it would be 2267. So he was 37. So 30, 23, 16. So that would mean his first one would have been either 16 or 23, depending on when you count adult. Because it says every seven years of your adult life. So his first one would have been either 16 or 23. I'm glad we settled that one. Ooh. I, I don't know if any of this is making it into the show, but I'm glad we settled that one. Well, if Savick is having sex with her 60-year-old mentor turned 16-year-old boy or turned 23-year-old, <laughs> does either of those options reduce the squick factor at all? You know what? I'm not here to judge. I don't know. If he's underage, I think I could judge. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) The absurdity of this. Welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. (laughs) Imagine outrage over underage sex. Statutory rape. Who would have thought this would be such a controversial topic? 
I think we basically covered this with my intro to the topic. Oi, the pawn four. <laughs> yes, let's move on. Is something else that, Scott, I know you're going to have a lot to say about the very last scene of this movie. Oh, good lord. The last scene of this movie may be my favorite scene in Star Trek. And we're talking about a 50-year franchise of, like, seven or 800 television episodes and 12 movies and hundreds and hundreds of novels. This might be my favorite scene in all of Star Trek, where Spock and Kirk... And Spock has lost his mind, literally. He's just recently reacquired his mind, and he's still sort of acclimating himself to it. He's just recently reacquired conscious existence, and he's still reacclimating himself to it. And so he's sort of Spock-stripped bare. And they do this a lot in Star Trek. They did it several times on the original series. It's Spock-stripped of artifice, Spock-stripped of propriety, Spock stripped of what he thinks he should be doing or how he thinks he should be acting because he doesn't know how he should be acting or what he should be doing because he doesn't know anything because he just recently reacquired a mind. They did this a few times on the original series, as I said. You know, this side of paradise with the spores, uh, the end of a muck time where he sort of breaks his own character and acts emotionally. It's been sort of a running theme of Spock losing the Vulcan facade and you get to see the emotional being underneath. And this is another part where Spock doesn't have the facade quite down. Spock doesn't know what he should be doing, how he should be acting. It's just sort of raw Spock. And you see him sort of grasping desperately, trying to recover what used to be his mind. And he's prompted by Kirk, and he tries to remember, and the first thing he comes up with is just short-term stuff, recent memories. The most recent thing he can think of. I have been and always shall be your friend. Ship out of danger. Stuff that like literally just happened. And then he tries a little harder and digs a little deeper and he comes up with a piece of knowledge. And for all we know it's the very first piece of knowledge he's able to recover from his old mind. And he comes up with a single piece of knowledge. It's basic facial recognition. You're this guy standing in front of me, and I recognize you. I know who you are. And you see this look on his face like, Aha! I know a thing. I know who you are. And it's very important to look at how does he recognize Kirk. Because Kirk and Spock have a multifaceted, multi-layered relationship, and Spock could recognize Kirk as many different people. Spock could say, oh, I recognize you as a human being named James Kirk that I am aware of the existence of. But that's not what he says. He could recognize him as, you are my longtime commanding officer, Captain Kirk. But that's not what he says. He could recognize him as, you are my superior officer, Admiral Kirk. That's not what he says. He grasps this memory, this first memory he's able to recover out of the fractured remnants of what used to be his mind. And the first thing he comes up with is... I recognize you. You're my friend, Jim. He calls him Jim. Not Captain, not Admiral, not James Kirk, not Kirk. He calls him Jim. That's the piece of information he's able to recover. Yes, uh, I, I totally agree that that is very deftly done. I think that's one point in this movie where the writing really shines and where they get the characters and their dynamic that is really one of the reasons why I love this movie. Tim, what do you think? 
Yeah, I was just going to say that line is what you show up for this movie for. The delivery, I mean, the eyebrows have it, right? (laughs) Leonard Nimoy, you know, for a film that is, in theory, centered around Spock, or at least Spock's journey from death back to life, Leonard Nimoy is in this film for precious little screen time. I think he gets about five minutes all told of meaningful screen time, if that. But boy, he really, uh, he walks away with the movie here at the very end. And that line of Jim, your name is Jim. It's triumphant in a way that the kind of definitive line from Khan In all my travels of all the souls I've ever known, his was the most human. That line is so shattering. It almost ties back to that, but with an inversion of what the message of the movie is trying to convey. Both of those lines choke me up, but in different ways. Totally, totally. It's it's an amazing scene, and it's a great way to cap off the movie. One other thing I want to talk about is something I want to talk about with regard to all these movies because of my personal fandom, is the score for this movie. Written by James Horner, the second and final Star Trek movie that he did, the recently deceased James Horner. And in the same ways that this movie is closely tied to Star Trek II and yet very different in tone, the score uses a lot of the same themes as Star Trek II, but the tone and the use of those melodies is different. The entire score, except for the Klingon music, which kind of replaces the Khan theme from Star Trek II, and would later go on to be used extensively in Aliens, just a couple years later. The rest of the score is really lyrical and long-lined. The cues breathe a little more. The Star Trek II score was full of energy. It was very propulsive. Star Trek III... The score takes its cue from the movie in that it's a little more melancholy, it's a little more meditative. And those are qualities that I think are conveyed extremely well. There are pieces in this score that I just love. The track Returning to Vulcan, the album version, not the film version, has these soaring versions of Spock's theme. it's, It's an amazing piece. It also has some action material for the scene stealing the Enterprise, for the Klingons, and that's all great material. But it's in those long lines and in those cues where it really breathes that I really, really enjoy this score the more and more the more I listen to it. Yeah, this score is definitely... It just feels very different from Rathacon because, like you said, it's much longer and lyrical and more meditative Everything's a longer cue, everything is played a little more slowly, whereas Rathacon was very energetic. It was all about ramping up the intensity of the intense scenes of Rathacon. The Search for Spock score is much more sedate and, like I said, just sort of long and lyrical. Uh, Tim, I don't know if you're a score aficionado. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? There were points, I think, in the score where almost gave me a Superman-esque vibe. I'm talking the the 1970s Donner Superman. Moments where both films were in. Speaking of of this and Superman, kind of just 
dropped all pretense and just embraced the fantasy element, the the verisimilitude, as Donner was fond of saying. You just set aside all the techno babble and the and the hard sci-fi and you have a film to just really match the emotion and the way you're suspending your disbelief, I guess you can say. I don't know that I'm communicating that very eloquently or differently from what you guys have already said, but that was the sense I got from it. It it just sort of evoked that same quality in my recent viewing of this. One thing that I noticed is that a lot of scenes where you would think that would have a more energetic, action-oriented score, the death of David and his fight with the Klingon, and then Kirk's reaction when he has that great scene where he falls in front of the chair... And the final fight at the end between Kirk and Kruge. All those scenes are completely unscored. The the background is completely silent on those. And the final fight, maybe it's just James Horner saying, this is a mess, I don't want anything to do with it. It might also be that that could have given it a different feel than what they wanted. I think giving David's death kind of a big, exciting, crashing cue wouldn't really be appropriate. This is a movie that is willing to let a moment hang. And I think not having a score cue during some of those sequences kind of adds to that. Maybe. I think it might have improved the fight scene, though. Possibly. I think it's also interesting to note that Star Trek II was when Horner really burst onto the scene. And you feel that in the music. Star Trek III is a much more mature work from someone who's still young... I mean, it's only a two-year difference, but he's showing a variety of things that he can do. And I think that conveys some of the reasons why very shortly after this, he became too big in the film scoring scene and too expensive for a Star Trek movie to afford. Also, of course, I believe I've read in multiple places that when Leonard Nimoy came on as director... He originally wanted to hire a composer named Leonard Rosenman, who was a friend of his, to score the movie, and he was persuaded not to. Certainly Horner wanted to come back, since Star Trek II was such a big opportunity for him. This would turn out to be Horner's last movie, and Leonard Rosenman would turn out to be the composer for Star Trek IV, so we will see how that tracks. I'm not sure exactly how it is that Horner was too big a name to bring back to Star Trek, considering they brought back Jerry Goldsmith like 12 times. There are some other things that go into that. There are some differences in the way that Jerry Goldsmith and James Horner managed their careers. Jerry Goldsmith tended to do more movies in a year than almost anyone. There's an idea that he was a bit of a workaholic. This score was released in complete form... Just to round it out, on the Filmscore Monthly label on their retrograde imprint in 2010, it is an edition that sounds fabulous. It is a two-disc presentation because the album had some different takes. It is a great presentation. It has everything on there. And, of course, the original album and the two-CD complete set ends with a dance remix, which is always delightful. Tim, let's move a little more into your wheelhouse. What can you tell us about the Star Trek comic book line around, before, and after this movie? Oh, boy. 
So, briefly, Star Trek was being adapted into other media for some time after its original series run. Uh, Most notably, Gold Key was the comics publisher that held the Star Trek license in the late 60s throughout most of the 70s. These are some interesting artifacts that I think, for the sake of brevity, I will gloss over. Marvel landed the license in 1979. Actually, the first thing they did with Star Trek was an adaptation of Star Trek the motion picture. Uh, Held on to the license for about two years and told original stories using, get this, only the characters and concepts from Star Trek the motion picture. Such were the limitations of their agreement with Paramount, presumably. So that series lasted only about 20 issues or so. They lost the license in the early 80s. At that point, it moved over to DC Comics, who would have it for, I think, the iteration of Star Trek comics that most fans of the comics are familiar with. DC kind of did right by the franchise in the way that previous publishers maybe hadn't done such a good job with. And the very first issue of their Star Trek series was an adaptation of Search for Spock. And I think this probably ate up a couple of issues of that title. From there, they moved on to an extended story arc featuring a battle with the Mirror World counterparts of our favorite characters. So you'll recall at the end of Search for Spock... Spock has regained his Katra. He's kind of getting his wits about him again. The crew is left on Vulcan. The Enterprise is gone, left on the remnants of Genesis at this point. And that's where we leave off. Well, throughout the course of this DC series, Spock regains basically all of his memories and his previous characterization his personality is restored intact to the character that we are most familiar with uh he does a mind meld with his mirror universe counterpart to accomplish this uh he moves on to take command of his own ship the serac i believe it was called kirk and crew dodge a court-martial The Enterprise, of course, is no more, so they take command of the Excelsior. Starfleet kind of tried to kill two birds with one stone by putting them in this position. They said, well, Kirk wants to gallivant across the galaxy. We're going to give him this piece of shit ship that doesn't run very well and hasn't lived up to our expectations. We'll let him work all the kinks out. And this way, we avoid the bad publicity of a long and extended court-martial for, well, his mutiny in the course of Search for Spock. So we're talking a good 20-some-odd issues of story taking place here where Kirk and company have command of an entirely different vessel. Uh, Spock has his own crew and his own ship that he is captain of. Then the fourth film, the one with the whales, rolls along. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but how does that film open? With the crew, as we last saw them, on Vulcan, Enterprise destroyed, Spock not quite having his wits about him yet. 
So DC had to jump through some hoops to make this possible, to set things back to where they were at the start of the series. So very quickly, Spock contracts an alien virus that robs him of many of his memories and kind of puts him in a coma, which more or less reverts him to the state he was in at the end of Search for Spock. Uh, the Serac, his ship, is flown into the sun, never to be seen or spoken of again. And the Excelsior is either taken away or similarly destroyed. I, I think it's just taken away and the crew, once again, stranded on Vulcan. So that sounds like a pretty organic progression, right? Sounds like we didn't miss a beat there. Just shove 20, 30-odd issues worth of story between oh, six weeks between film, it seemed like. That was maybe the passage of time. It was quite some maneuvering, the acrobatics that took place here. And they turned all this around in about, I think, three to four issues. So very impressive on the part of DC. And the writer of that series uh, was actually, I believe, Lynn Wayne, who at least did the bulk of the heavy lifting there. I don't know if he wrote the entire series, but he's better known as the writer of, well, basically every single superhero circa 1970s Marvel and DC. So there you have it. A brief early history of Star Trek in the comics, in the funny books. Wow. See, the novels avoided that problem because all the novels were set either during the original series or during the time frame immediately after Star Trek 1. So they didn't have to come up with a way to tell stories without Spock in the wake of Star Trek 2. They just set their stories earlier in the timeline. Marvel had similar problems with their Star Wars license where they continued telling stories after A New Hope, but... That was a little bit different in the sense that no one really knew there was going to be an Empire Strikes Back. Uh, So they had a little bit more leeway to play with the characters and take them in directions that Lucasfilm was pretty much indifferent to, it seems like. There's some revisionist history that says they had a firmer hand and control of that property, but I really don't think it was there, considering we had a couple of appearances of Jabba the Hutt before he had ever appeared in any of the films and looked drastically different. So I think such is the nature of the beast with these licensed properties that kind of take on a life of their own. But yeah, I always find these these things fascinating. It's one of those deals where you almost had to be there to really appreciate it. But delving into the content, I wasn't reading these as they were coming out. But the little I have read of the Star Trek comics, I'm like, wait, how did they shove all this story between two movies that take place basically back to back? I mean, there's there's not a lot of wiggle room. <laughs> Certainly not for Kirk to take command of a new ship entirely and and Spock to go out on his own and, and have adventures. So, uh, yeah, interesting curio, at least from my point of view as a comics reader. Yeah, that is an amazing sense of whiplash. <laughs> All right. I think that will do it for our discussion of Star Trek Three. I think it's been a good discussion. Before we get out of here... Whenever we have a guest on this show, we like to do a segment on other media that we've been consuming lately. 
Could be books, comics, podcasts, movies, TV, anything. Tim, do you have something you want to uh, give a nod to? Oh, a lot of Star Trek. Uh, some of the X-Files revival, which is, we'll just call it neither here nor there. But what I want to call particular attention to is a new series on FX called Baskets. This is a show that doesn't seem to be getting a lot of press. It's more than likely not going to get renewed. I don't know. Maybe it already has or it's already been canceled. I'm not really keeping up with that. But on this program, Zach Galifianakis uh, plays a rodeo clown named Dale Baskets, or he may be Chip Baskets. I'm confused in this because he also plays his twin brother, who is the director of a community college. And these are very different people. It's a weird show. It's a really weird show. The The breakout performance in the show, and, and the reason I keep coming back to it, is Louis Anderson, that Louis Anderson, the rather large comedian, plays his mother. And this is not a role that's played for laughs at all. It's very straightforward. It's Louis Anderson as Chip and Dale Baskett's mother, Christine Baskett's. It really shouldn't work like at all, except as a bit of physical comedy and slapstick. But it does. It just really does. It's a show that's hard to describe. It's about relationships and following your dreams. But in the sense that a lot of times when you do that, doesn't quite work out because that's the nature of taking risk. There's risk in reward. So a lot of this explores the darker elements of following your dreams and your ambitions, however absurd and ridiculous they may be, and sort of the angst that that this causes you um, both situationally and existentially. So it's a show that's worth checking out. It's only got about I think about six or so episodes under its belt. I have no idea what day of the week it comes on. I've just been watching it on the FX app, but do check it out if you're into things that are a little bit off center and weird. So in the spirit of embracing the weird baskets on FX. Interesting. Yes. I am all about embracing the weird. I just looked up photos of Louie Anderson in this show. And that is a special, special role must be. Like I said, it works. It shouldn't, but it does. You're not sitting there the whole time going, ah, ha, ha, look at Louie Anderson and drag. It's, it's not like that at all. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much, Tim, for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Scott, for being with us. Am I with you? Nobody needs me. And thank you, listeners, for being with us. We do need you. Oh, so, so badly. So, let's, uh, let's wrap this up here. If you want to find me on the internet, I am at Bun on Tumblr, on Twitter. You can comment on the show post on the Facebook pages for Place to Be Nation, Leave questions, comments, suggestions for the show. Everything will be read and appreciated. Questions might be used in a future episode. 
Tim, where can people find you online if you want people to find you online? Oh, if I want people to find me online, I would direct them to my Twitter at Psych68, C Y K E 68. I write about one article a year for placetobenation.com. Generally, something in the realm of comics, characters I like, and comics that I've read 20 years ago. But, um, yeah, if, if that's your cuppa, check it out, placetobenation.com. All right. I can particularly recommend your article, multi-part article, on Captain America. That was a fantastic read. Oh, yeah, thank you. Scott, no one can find you. I am not currently engaging in social media. That will do it for us. Thank you very much for listening. We will catch you next time.